Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Melrose Avenue is one of the most famous streets in Los Angeles. Its posh boutiques and fancy restaurants have made it a mecca for Hollywood hipsters and tourists. But in June 1992, there was another reason to visit. The Fox Broadcasting Company had blocked off a portion of Melrose Avenue from Sierra Bonita to Vista Street for a block party attended by a thousand invited guests. Some of the guests were from Fox. Others were associated with TV station affiliates or sponsors. But they were all there for the same reason. To meet the cast of one of the most hyped and anticipated new shows of the upcoming TV season. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're taking a look at another powerhouse show from Aaron Spelling and Darren Starr, one that grew out of the teen classic Beverly Hills 90210, and despite a rough start, became one of the most outrageous and compulsively watchable TV shows of the 1990s. This is the story of Melrose Place. As we talked about on the last episode of History of the 90s, Beverly Hills 90210 had become an international pop culture phenomenon by the end of its second season. So it made sense that executives at the Fox Network, which aired the soapy teen drama, would want to cash in on its success. They decided to develop a spin-off show that would coincide with the network expanding its primetime programming from five to seven nights a week. Fox approached 90210 creator Darren Starr and suggested he graduate the students from West Beverly Hills High after season two and send them to college in season three. Then come up with two new programs, an all-new gang at 90210 and 90210 The College Years with the original gang. But Starr rejected that idea and instead pitched them a show that sprang from his own post-college days when he was living in a West Hollywood, California courtyard apartment complex where everybody got to know each other. Starr said in a 1992 interview, when you strike out on your own for the first time, your friends become your family. Which you may remember sounds weirdly similar to what the creators of Friends said two years later when they were pitching their new sitcom to NBC. Either way, Fox liked Starr's idea because they understood that a show that focused on 20-somethings would allow for more mature storylines pulling in a new older audience while still appealing to the teenage fans of 90210. So demographically, it had the potential of actually being even bigger than 90210. The only thing left to figure out was a way to connect the two shows so that a spin-off made sense. Enter droopy-eyed dreamboat motorcycle dude Jake Hansen, played by Grant Cho. In April 1992, he appeared in the second-to-last episode of 90210's second season. So he's a handyman. It's established as soon as we meet him for the first time that he knows Dylan from the past. Again, the timelines on this are all very shady because by that point, we have known Dylan for a year and a half, and we've never heard tell of this guy who's been in the Pacific Northwest. So, like, was he hanging around with Dylan when he was in grade nine? Also weird. That's Tara Ariano, co-host of the 90210 and Melrose podcast, again with this. 
She says that despite their age difference, Jake the Handyman has a flirtatious relationship with 90210 high schooler Kelly Taylor. Doesn't really go anywhere. They kiss, that's it. And then he goes to his own, back to his own apartment complex. And there's a couple of episodes where a few characters from 90210 cross over into Melrose and then never again. Which is exactly what Aaron Spelling wanted. You see, he had learned a lesson in the 80s when he created a spinoff to Dynasty, his popular nighttime soap. The spinoff series, The Colbys, worked at first, but it ended up sapping Dynasty by taking away too many popular characters from the original show, which ended up annoying fans. Spelling did not want to make that mistake again and insisted that nobody from 90210 would continue permanently on Melrose Place. Before Melrose Place even launched, there was a ton of hype around the show. Lots of press junkets and that block party on Melrose Avenue that I mentioned at the top of the podcast. It was possibly the most publicized show that hadn't even hit the airwaves yet. Excited broadcasters in England, Germany, Australia, and France picked it up sight unseen, wanting to be a part of what everyone assumed would be the next big thing. In particular, there was a ton of press around Grant's show, who was expected to be the next Jason Priestley and Luke Perry all rolled into one. The 30-year-old's resume included a regular stint on the daytime soap Ryan's Hope. And prior to show's Melrose debut as Jake Hansen, he had already appeared on the covers of People magazine and TV Guide. Joining Jake Hansen in the cute apartment complex at 4616 Melrose Place are married couple Jane and Michael Mancini, played by Josie Bissett and Thomas Calabro, She's a fashion designer who works at a boutique, and he's a devoted husband, at least in the beginning, as well as a hardworking intern at the hospital. He also works on the side as the manager of the apartment complex. Before Melrose, Calabro had performed off-Broadway, and Bissette was best known for a reoccurring role on The Hogan Family. Also residing in the complex is Allison Parker, who is fresh out of college from the Midwest and working as a receptionist at an ad agency. Allison is played by Courtney Thorne-Smith, who before Melrose played Harry Hamlin's girlfriend on the popular series L.A. Law. She had auditioned for another Aaron Spelling medical show called Partners and was devastated when she didn't get the job. But Spelling assured Thorne-Smith he did want to work with her, and the next day a script for Melrose play showed up on her doorstep. Her character Allison has a roommate, Billy Campbell. He's a struggling writer and ballroom dance instructor played by Andrew Hsu. Hsu, incidentally, wasn't the first choice to play Billy. Initially, Canadian actor Stephen Fanning was hired for the role. But in the middle of filming the pilot, he was replaced by Hsu, who had just moved to L.A. after playing professional soccer in Zimbabwe. Other residents in the Melrose Place apartments included gay social worker Matt Fielding, played by Doug Savon, making the show one of the few dramatic series in all of TV history up to that point to have a gay character. He was joined by aspiring actress Sandy Louise Harling, played by Amy Locaine. She waits tables at Shooters to pay the rent and has a roommate. Her name is Rhonda Blair, and she's an aerobics instructor. Both live in apartment six. Melrose Place received praise for including the Black character, played by Vanessa A. Williams. She had previously appeared on The Cosby Show and in the movies New Jack City and Candyman. And just to clarify, she is not Vanessa Williams, the famous singer-actor who lost her Miss America title because of leaked nude photos. 
For the launch of the highly anticipated series, Fox decided to use the same trick that helped 90210 significantly grow its audience. They launched the show's spinoff during the summer when the other networks were on reruns. The first episode debuted at 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday, July 8, 1992, with a 90-minute episode. The next week, it would move into its regular 9 p.m. slot right after 90210. The show's opening credits, a kinetic 90 seconds of guitar riffs and quick camera shots, introduce viewers to the cast of mostly unknown 20-somethings. Melrose Place looked young, hip, and exciting. With all the hype, the 90210 connection, and the summer debut, it seemed like a slam dunk. But surprisingly, Melrose was not an instant rating success. Like 90210 before it, it actually struggled out of the gates. A July 1992 review in The Hollywood Reporter said Melrose Place isn't so much a spin-off as it is a turn-off. They saw it as an attempt to make a great deal about not very much. You see, in the beginning, Melrose Place wasn't the nighttime soap with over-the-top storylines that we remember it for now. Early episodes in season one were, well, kind of dull. Stuff like Billy doesn't want to work in his dad's furniture store. Sandy doesn't feel comfortable taking her shirt off for a role in a horror movie. And Michael works too much at the hospital. Each episode was self-contained and followed a similar format. A problem arose, everybody pitched in to solve it, then they all gathered in the courtyard of the apartment complex for a pool party. According to Sarah D. Bunting, the other host of the podcast Again With This, Melrose Place was kind of a snooze fest. Like Beverly Hills 90210 did, I think this started out as a much more like, it's going to be 20-something in California. And then it was like, nobody cares about the actual struggles of actual Angelinos. The Gen X viewers tuning in didn't want reality. They wanted escapism, and Fox wanted better ratings. So that's when Aaron Spelling decided it was time to call in his secret weapon. Heather Locklear, Aaron Spelling called her his lucky penny. And he he had brought her in on a number of other shows. She was Sammy Joe on Dynasty and, and she was his lucky penny here too. Like she really did change the game. As Tara mentioned, before Melrose, Heather Locklear appeared on Dynasty in 1981 as the trashy Sammy Joe, ex-wife of Stephen Carrington. Well, that character was written off after just 13 episodes. Then, a short time later, Locklear landed a role on another Aaron Spelling show. Where'd you pick up that trick with the baton? Hooker taught me. Sort of makes up for my size. Yeah. Well, you did good, kid. Locklear joined TJ Hooker in season two, starring alongside William Shatner as rookie officer Stacy Sheridan. Not long after landing the role on TJ Hooker, Locklear was written back into Dynasty, making her the only actress at the time working regularly on two popular primetime series. In the midst of it all, Locklear made headlines when in May 1986, she married Tommy Lee, the tattoo-covered bad boy drummer in metal band Motley Crue. In the heyday of big blonde hair, Locklear was one of the biggest. 
So it was no surprise when Fox introduced Locklear on Malrose Place in January 1993, midway through season one, that she brought a lot of renewed interest in the show, which had seemed destined for cancellation. Viewers who had given up on the show earlier in the season tuned back in to see Locklear as Amanda Woodward, Allison's high-powered ad executive boss. And they were surprised to see that Malrose Place had changed while they were away. Darren Starr had finally accepted that going the non-soap opera route had been a mistake. Instead of wrapping up problems at the end of each episode, Melrose Place writers began to serialize the show. Storylines carried on from one episode to the next, the hallmark of any good soap opera. Initially, Heather Locklear's role as Amanda was only supposed to be a four-episode arc, but it quickly became obvious to producers that she was exactly what the show needed. For something like this, if you're going to escalate to like pure soap, like some you need a villain and who is the villain can change from episode to episode. And she she is it most of the time. I mean, it ebbs and flows like she's really the prime mover of like, you know, Allison's whining about something and she's like, uh, yeah, Amanda as her boss is like, I don't care. Just do it. <laughs> like, I don't care if you're dating this guy. I'm dating him now. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Like you need I don't care energy for a soap. By the end of season one, Heather Locklear's reoccurring role as Amanda Woodward was made a permanent part of the show, although she was always listed as a special guest star throughout the show's run. Amanda surprised Billy and Allison with some big news in the season one finale episode. <sighs> what are you doing here? <sighs> My big surprise. I'm buying the building. I mean, Dad and I are buying the building, but I'm going to live here and manage the place. I... <sighs> I don't believe it. Yeah, this is, this is... Wonderful, isn't it? Great investment, great friends. I think I'm really gonna love it here. Despite the addition of Amanda and the soapy slant given to the show, Melrose Place still struggled, ranking at about 110 out of 140 shows in the Nielsen ratings. But Fox didn't give up on the show just yet. It ordered a 32-episode second season, which began in September 1993. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When season two started, the cast looked slightly different than at the beginning of season one. Sandy Louise Sparling, played by Amy Locaine, was gone. She actually disappeared from the cast with no explanation after appearing in 12 episodes in season one. Sandy was replaced by photographer Joe Reynolds, played by Daphne Zuniga. Vanessa A. Williams, who played black aerobics instructor Rhonda Blair, was also written off the show, which was a disappointment to viewers and others who had praised producers for including a black character, unlike its predecessor, 90210. Jane's troublemaking sister, Sydney Andrews, who appeared in one episode during the first season, joined as a reoccurring character in season two, which evolved into a regular spot for actor Laura Layton. Tara Ariano says Layton understood the assignment when she took the role. Laura Layton's performance is absolutely 
effervescent, flawless, gorgeous. Like everything they have her do and they have her do some real dumb stuff. It she's she sells it. She just gets up to some absolutely ridiculous stuff and she is so funny and charming and delightful. Producers promised season two would be filled with messy, high-stakes drama. And they also vowed to give gay character Matt more of a romantic life, something the show had been criticized for during season one. Despite the pledge, Tara says Matt remained the least gay gay character ever. I mean, I interviewed Darren Starr earlier this year um, and, and he said, you know, I, I knew that there were limits on what we could do with Matt just because the advertisers and the networks were so scared of the reaction they would get. And so he's like, you know, our joke, not just our joke, everyone's joke about Matt is like the most, the furthest he can get with any of his boyfriends is like a hug, like not even a kiss on the cheek most of the time. In fact, at the end of season two, a scene that showed a kiss between Matt and a date was deleted replaced instead with a handshake. Fox executives said they decided to cut it because they were worried about losing up to a million dollars in advertising if the kiss aired. But producers did live up to their promise of high-stakes drama in other ways. Season two saw Melrose Place evolve into a nasty, over-the-top primetime soap with affairs, divorces, stalkers, and sex. Lots of it. And Gen X viewers loved it. For many, Melrose had achieved cult status. While the show remained low in the overall ratings, it had shot up to the number three spot for all viewers ages 21 to 29, up 150% from the year before when it ranked 45th. The show was so popular with 20-somethings that throughout the run of the show, it became common for them to hold viewing parties with friends, and not just at home. My friend John and I used to go to this Irish pub on the east side, it, not in a particularly like cool neighborhood. It was just like halfway between we both where we both lived in Manhattan. And uh, eventually we just started like we were there every Monday and then we would leave to go watch Melrose at my apartment. And the finally the guys were like, well, do you want us to just put it on on the TV over the bar? And then so it's like all these publishing suits from Midtown and me and John in our green jeans because 90s and then they started putting out like wing trays and like they made a thing. Fans of the show were also turning to the internet which was still fairly young but nonetheless a new and exciting way to experience fandom and a sense of community. You know the internet sort of um, creates uh, creates a sort of second community in which you can watch and enjoy TV, that sense of community, that part of it can't be um, unyoked from the enjoyment of it. It's the enjoyment of it in community. Viewers deconstructed episodes online, sometimes shining a light on massive plot holes. This is this is the, the evolution from, you know, being mobbed at mall appearances to just having every aspect of your performance and character just chewed over by the most obsessive fans that are, you know, inching through episodes after they tape them on their VHS machine to just, you know, crawl forward frame by frame to absolutely just just drink in every second. Melrose Place infiltrated pop culture in so many ways. People were even naming their babies after characters. Judge Lance Ito requested Melrose videos for the sequester jurors at the O.J. Simpson trial. And in 1995, it was even featured on a Seinfeld episode. 
which during the 90s was kind of the litmus test for whether or not something was a legit phenomenon. In the episode called The Beard, Jerry takes a lie detector test to prove that he doesn't watch Melrose Place. Did Jane's fiance kidnap Sydney and take her to Las Vegas? And if so, did she enjoy it? I don't know. Did Jane sleep with Michael again? Yes! Yes, that stupid idiot! He left her for Kimberly! He slept with her sister! He tricked her into giving him half her business, and then she goes ahead and sleeps with him again! I mean, she's crazy! How could you do something like that? I mean, that Jane, how she just makes me so mad! Jerry wasn't the only one with complicated feelings about watching Melrose. Viewers were aware that at times, the writing was bad and some of the acting was terrible, but it was irresistible. One reporter in the 90s said the show went down as easy as a jello shot. The visuals were also fun, especially the fashion. After every episode, Fox would be inundated with callers wanting to know where they could buy the clothes they'd seen on the show the night before. And the leading fashion icon had to be Heather Locklear. No one wore shoulder pads, tight mini skirts, and high-heeled mules quite like her character, Amanda Woodward. The micro minis really are like, they just couldn't show her sitting down because she couldn't. They're like hot pants, but a skirt. Clothing makers responded by designing more body-conscious business suits and tight skirts. And the fashion brand Rampage even launched a suit line named Amanda. Some of the 90s style on that show, oof. But like, if anyone's going to pull it off, it's her. And then she always has like a big claw clip in the back. And you're like, what were we doing in the first Clinton administration? Disastrous. Tara says there was no getting away from the fact that Locklear was more of a rocker chick than the ad executive she portrayed. She went from being married to Tommy Lee to dating and then marrying Richie Sambora and like... She just never, her, that's, the hair is not really appropriate for her character, but she looks like she should be in a heavy metal video from like the chin up and it's fine. Like we just, that's Amanda's hair, it just is. On the opposite end of the spectrum was Jane and her adorable pixie cut, which inspired many young women in the 90s to go to their salon and ask for a similar cut. And while we're talking about hair, I should mention one of the most iconic moments of Melrose Place, which involved someone's hair. Well, actually, it was a wig. But before I get into it, I want to give a little bit of the backstory for listeners who may not have watched Melrose. In season one, fans were introduced to Dr. Kimberly Shaw, played by Marsha Cross, who would go on to star in another Darren Star creation, Desperate Housewives. On Melrose, Kimberly is a fellow intern who works with Dr. Michael Mancini who goes from being Jane's devoted husband to a horrible, womanizing cheater. Towards the end of the first season, Michael and Kimberly have an affair. He leaves Jane, and one night, while he is very drunk, Michael proposes to Kimberly, and then tragedy strikes. Come on, say it. All right! I'll marry you! Kimberly is killed when their car plunges off a cliff. And when Sydney finds out that Michael was drunk and the accident was his fault, she blackmails him and they get married. Are you following? Well, anyway, toward the end of season two, after being dead for 13 weeks, 
Kimberly makes a surprising resurrection, which is made even more shocking when her signature red locks turns out to be a wig, which she dramatically removes, revealing close cropped hair and a massive scar. Nearly 18 million stunned viewers watched the episode, which today is remembered as quintessential Melrose Place. In 2019, Darren Starr reflected back on the resurrection of Kimberly, and he said he planned it all along to bring the character back to life. She was just too good to lose. But he thought it might be kind of fun to have her go away for a while so that she was forgotten about. As for the wig reveal, Starr says he remembers pitching the idea in the writer's room, unsure of how people would take it. There was a moment of silence. Then, to Starr's relief, one of the writers finally spoke up and said, I love it. Starr said during the filming, the crew screamed and howled because the scene was both shocking and hilarious at the same time, which really is the fine line that Melrose Place tries to walk. It was almost over the top, but not quite. At least not yet. Riding high on the season two success of Melrose Place, Fox announced another spinoff from Aaron Spelling and Darren Starr. In April 94, Linda Gray, who played Sue Ellen Ewing on the popular 80s primetime soap Dallas, showed up on Melrose Place for a four-episode arc as Amanda's mother. She owns a modeling agency in Los Angeles, which would become the focus of the series Models, Inc. The spinoff was short-lived, however, and was cancelled after just one season. As for Melrose Place, heading into season three in September 94, the show was switched to Monday nights at 8 p.m., and to accompany the move, Fox launched a billboard campaign with the tagline, Mondays are a bitch, with Heather Locklear's face on it. The actor thought the campaign was fantastic. And to this day, she has a small version of the ad on display in her house. As season three premiered, there were some new faces on the cast, including former General Hospital heartthrob Jack Wagner as Dr. Peter Burns. Sarah says he was a very welcome addition. I have had a more or less stable and consistent crush on Jack Wagner since um, Reagan's first term when he was on General Hospital and I would be rushing out of the carpool and knocking down pets and family members to get to the TV so that I could see like the last 20 minutes um, of the show. And uh, he, Jack Wagner, like he always understands what he is there to do and how he is supposed to do it. The addition of Peter Burns, I think, was like what allowed the show to throw itself into its highest gear. Joining Wagner in season three was Kristen Davis, better known as Charlotte on Sex and the City. She played Brooke Anderson and was only supposed to do 10 episodes, dying in the explosion that tore through the apartment complex at the end of season three, which I will touch on shortly. Starr decided, however, he wanted to keep Davis on the show so Brooke wasn't killed off in the explosion. She survived, at least until episode 21 of season four, when she fell drunk into the Melrose Place pool and drowned. Melrose added a number of other popular regulars to the show over the following seasons, including Rob Estes, who joined in season five as Kyle McBride. Estes had actually appeared in season one and two as a totally different character, but in season five, he was introduced as a former Marine turned chef who moves into the apartment complex with his wife, Taylor, played by none other than Lisa Renna of Real Housewives fame. 
The role of Taylor was originally supposed to be played by Hunter Tylo, who left her gig on The Bold and the Beautiful for a chance to appear on Melrose. But when she became pregnant, producers fired Tylo and replaced her with Renna. Tylo sued Spelling Productions, maintaining that camera angles and advanced technology could have hidden her pregnancy. In the lawsuit, she claimed that one of the producers even suggested that she have an abortion. The jury sided with Tylo and awarded her nearly $5 million. She returned to her role on The Bold and the Beautiful, where she stayed until 2019. There were also tons of great guest appearances on Melrose, including supermodel Kathy Ireland, who visited for four episodes in season three as a woman Jake rescues from an abusive husband. Writer Darren Starr says they thought of Ireland as the Bond girl of Melrose Place. Dan Cortese, the grunge-era MTV personality, landed a significant role in season three as Jake's monstrous brother Jess. His role ends in the season finale after falling off a construction platform hundreds of feet in the air following a fight with his brother. Tracy Lords was also brought in to spice things up during season three. The former adult film star played Ricky, who drags Sydney off to join a cult. And in season four, Priscilla Presley plays Nurse Benson, who falls for Dr. Peter Burns. Presley has admitted that she had never seen the show before she was tapped for the three-episode appearance, and she was kind of shocked at how risque it was. But then again, she was married to the man who drove teenage girls wild just by moving his hips. Another iconic Melrose moment happened at the end of season three, when Kimberly, for reasons that are far too complicated to explain, plants a series of bombs around the Melrose Place apartments. Kimberly. It's worse. No! Writers initially had a different idea for the storyline. Carol Mendelson, a supervising producer on the show, told The Hollywood Reporter in 2017 that originally Kimberly was going to kidnap Sydney and have her fly a plane into the Melrose courtyard. But as they were working on that idea, somebody actually crashed a Cessna airplane on the south lawn of the White House. So a decision was made to scrap it. Writers then decided that instead, Kimberly would use bombs to blow up the courtyard. But shortly after, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. So things changed once again. In the end, Melrose didn't actually show the explosion on the season three finale in May 1995. All the viewers saw was Kimberly pushing the trigger, which made for an excellent cliffhanger over the summer. Then when season four opened in September 1995, things picked up where they left off and Melrose Place was blown to smithereens. Looking back at the storyline, actor Grant Show, who played Jake, said that if there was a shark, they were definitely jumping it with that story. But, you know, it didn't matter. This was when Melrose was at its peak. They could do no wrong. Close to 14 million viewers were tuning in weekly. And cast members were everywhere, featured on the cover of magazines and interviewed on talk shows. Just like 90210, it had become a pop culture phenomenon. But the era of peak Melrose wouldn't last forever. While there was always a devoted fan base, viewership started decreasing around season five. That's when fans began complaining that too many new cast members and guest stars were eating up plots for the regulars. Then in season six, there was a mass exodus of many of the original characters. Kimberly, Sydney, Jane, Jake, and Allison all moved on. 
And so did many viewers. The number of people watching dropped from 14 million to 8.5 million. So Fox finally made the decision to cancel the show. Residents at 4616 Melrose Place would receive their eviction notice after seven seasons of bed-hopping, blackmailing, and blowing things up. The finale was set to air on May 24, 1999. The tension has been building all season long, and next Wednesday, it's going to explode. Get ready. In keeping with tradition, fans attended watch parties around the country as they tuned in one final time to say goodbye to the show that had been a reliable companion, first on Wednesday nights, then on Mondays. Also keeping with tradition, the series that prided itself on over-the-top drama concluded with more of the same. In the finale, Amanda and Peter skip the country and secretly marry on a remote tropical island after faking their own deaths by blowing up a cabin and bribing Michael not to tell anyone. We did it, huh? You think Michael will keep the secret? Michael? Yeah. He's got a million bucks in cash. The million they think burned up in that cabin. Yeah, it worked like a charm, didn't it? Amanda and Peter then literally walk off into the sunset. Even though Melrose Place was well past its peak when its seven-year run came to an end, industry insiders applauded what it had accomplished, calling it a turning point for television. Unlike the nighttime soaps of the 80s, which were made for the boomer generation, Melrose Place was the first true Gen X soap opera, and it paved the way for other shows that focused on 20-somethings, including the 90s classic Friends. According to creator Darren Starr, the show's other legacy will be how it brought people together for one hour a week, creating memories and bonding moments over soapy storylines involving psycho doctors, murders, and blackmail. And along the way, teaching viewers what it truly means to experience a guilty pleasure. Thanks for listening to this look back at Melrose Place, a time and a place like no other. Thanks also to Tara Ariano and Sarah D. Bunting for sharing their knowledge and expertise. They host the great podcast Again With This, Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place, which is available anywhere you stream audio. Patreon subscribers can listen to my whole interview with Tara and Sarah. Head over to patreon.com slash history of the 90s to check it out. If you've got show ideas or comments, you can always reach me on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. Or you can send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.